Well, hopefully you have your Bibles with you, and if you do, please open them to Revelation chapter 3. This summer we've been dedicated to studying Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we finished up 2 last Wednesday, and now we're moving into chapter 3, and we've got three churches left to look at in these uh, seven letters to the churches in Revelation. So tonight we're going to be looking at the letter to to the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6. So you can follow along in your Bible as I read our text for tonight. Christ said this, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know at what hour, you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to dive into your word and to look at another one of these letters that Christ wrote to his beloved bride. And while we know that this was a specific church um, that Jesus was writing to and addressing specific issues in the life of that church, we know that there's lots of application for us. We know that simply because you say at the end of every one of these letters, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, Lord, we need to listen up tonight. And so would you give us a good attention? Lord, we're all tired. It's been a busy week and I'm sure a long day for many of us. And so would you just grant us grace to stay um, attentive tonight and um, not just attentive, but responsive to what we hear, that we would not just be merely hearers of your word, but doers, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's time to be honest, everyone. How many of you have ever dozed off in church? Come on, let's be honest. I'm raising my hand. Um, I've got marks on my forehead where, you know, I was trying to, you know, hold myself back and I finally, like, hit the pew in front of me, boom, and that woke me back up again, of course, but... Um, so I think most of us have had at least one experience where we've fallen asleep in church. We've dozed off uh, in church. And it's not uncommon, this is kind of a, a, a pastor's secret, by the way, uh, that people will come up to me after church and sheepish, sheepishly admit that they were struggling to stay awake during my message. And they assume that I noticed them nodding off. Like, I'm, I'm omniscient, I'm omnipresent, and I can see everybody and what they're doing, right? And so they want to reassure me that it wasn't me. It wasn't my message. 
um, but, and they give me some reason why it was so hard for them to keep their eyes open. And I appreciate that, and I tell them, hey, it's okay, I get it, I've been there, done that. And, um, but I, I get it, I feel bad for them, because it is embarrassing to fall asleep in church, especially if you know the pastor noticed it, or somebody next to you noticed um, you kind of nodding off, and especially when you have that awkward jerk, right? When you're like like that, and you're just like, okay, who saw that? That was really awkward. Um, but can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if that time that you dozed off in church was permanently recorded in the pages of Scripture? Like for the church from now and forever, right, would know that? Well, there was a guy in the book of Acts who fell asleep in church, When he was listening to a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul, this is Acts 20. This is one of those little fun facts in Scripture, right? Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. This is Luke uh, recording this. Luke was Paul's personal physician, and he traveled with Luke on his missionary journeys. It said, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So... Listen, I'm just going to about 8 o'clock tonight, okay? So can you imagine if I just kept droning on and on and on for four hours? Uh, half of you would be asleep, right? Um, there was many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus. You ever heard of that guy? Now you do. You've heard of him, Eutychus. Sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. So this guy was sitting up (laughs) on the third floor balcony or something, and uh, he fell asleep, and he fell all the way down to the floor, and he died. He fell to his death. There's good news, though. Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, For his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So here, somebody dies. Somebody falls asleep, falls down three three stories, dies. He he brings him back to life and he goes right back to his message. As if nothing (laughs) happened. So this passage is often used to appeal to preachers to shorten their sermons, to parishioners not to fall asleep in church. I think Luke included this story in his record of the growth and expansion of the church to highlight how the Apostle Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised this guy back to life. This was evidence that Paul was um, one of the apostles, uh, a man of God. Well, I have a second question to ask. You already asked you how many of you have dozed off in church. Second question, how many of you have ever been to a church that dozed off? I don't mean everyone sitting in the pews fell asleep during the service, but there was a deadness about the whole experience. It was like attending a a funeral service. The people were stiff and, and somber, and there was no excitement, there was no energy, and the songs were sung without any emotion or any enthusiasm, and the preaching was dull, and the delivery was not dynamic. It was a, simply a nice man speaking a nice sermon to a nice group of people. 
And there were more yawns than amens. And there was no passion for the Lord and no zeal for the lost. It was meaningless, um, mechanical, uh, just kind of a series of liturgies and rituals and creeds and traditions. And people were just kind of going through the motions. And there was no signs of spiritual life. It was nothing more but a morgue with a steeple. Maybe you've attended a church like that. Maybe that's the kind of church you grew up in. The worship was dead, the sermon was dead, the fellowship was dead, the people were dead. Perhaps that describes your spiritual life right now. Dead. You once were excited about your faith in Christ, but now you've lost your passion for him, you're spiritually stagnant. You used to be really faithful and and committed, but now you're unfaithful, you're undisciplined. There was a time when you spent time with the Lord on a daily basis. You hungered for his word. You longed to be in his presence through prayer. You were regularly involved in the life of the church and you enjoyed being around God's people, but that's really not the way it is right now. Your spiritual pulse has faded. Your faith is on the verge of flatlining. You need a spiritual awakening. You need to be spiritually revived. Well, that was the case with the church in Sardis. This was a church on their deathbed. Only the faint pulse of a, of a faithful remnant remained. And they were badly in need of a revival. And so Jesus wrote this church an urgent letter to shock them back to life. And this is the hard, harshest criticism that we find in any of the seven letters. Jesus was the hardest here on the church in Sardis. And really, this letter, I guess if you wanted to liken it to anything, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call not only for the church in Sardis, it's a wake-up call for us tonight. And it's going to give all of us an opportunity to take our spiritual pulse and and be admonished to take the necessary steps to revitalize our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so let's look at this letter together, and we're just going to follow the same outline as we have been following in the other letters we've looked at. There's the correspondence, the city, the church, the commendation, the condemnation, the correction, and then the consolation. So let's look first of all at the correspondent, and of course, Every week we're learning the correspondent is none other than Christ himself. And he would use um, descriptions of himself from the vision that John had of him in chapter 1. And notice how he introduces himself to this church. So the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God... If you notice, there's a capital there in your translation, I would imagine, um, which is an indication that what he was referring to here is the Holy Spirit and the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout the Bible, the number seven signifies fullness or completeness or perfection. 
And so Christ was drawing imagery here from the Old Testament about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relationship to himself. And we don't have time to look at all these texts, but you could write down Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 to 5, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Zechariah 4, 6 talks about uh, how it's not uh, by power, not by might, but by your spirit, says the Lord. And so we know that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, has a special relationship with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And if you remember from the Gospels, in order to prepare his disciples for his death and his resurrection and, most importantly, his return to heaven, Jesus promised to send them the Holy Spirit. He said, it's, gonna, it's good for you, it's going to be better for you that, that I go back to heaven because then you'll get the Holy Spirit who will come alongside you and will help you and empower you to carry out the mission that I'm going to entrust to you. And so if you remember at the very end of the, the Gospels that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with, power, with the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, everything in their lives and in the life of the church depended on the Holy Spirit. You can't do this without the Holy Spirit, so wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then once he comes, go for it. But until then, if you want, tried to go for it, you would be doing it in your own strength and nothing would be accomplished. And so we know that ever since the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples at Pentecost, filled and empowered uh, them, those that were gathered in the upper room, the Spirit of God has indwelt and energized the church of Jesus Christ ever since. And the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin he saves and sanctifies people. He gives people gifts to serve the other members of the body of Christ. He sovereignly raises up pastors and elders to lead the church. He illuminates people's minds so they can understand and apply God's word to their lives. He produces spiritual attitudes or actions or fruit in the lives of believers. He fills and empowers people to do the work of the ministry. The church of Jesus Christ is commanded to pray in the Spirit, to preach in the Spirit, to worship in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to not grieve the Holy Spirit, and to not quench the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit animates the church and permeates every aspect of church life. And without the Holy Spirit, the church is dead. And so with the church in Sardis lacked the most and needed the most was the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's why Jesus began this letter to the church in Sardis by highlighting the power of the Holy Spirit to revitalize this church. And so he says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars, if you remember, we said uh, some uh, would... would um, it says the seven stars, this is chapter 1, verse 20, are the angels of the seven churches. And every one of these letters, Jesus began with, to the angel of. We said that that was not an angel uh, assigned to that particular church. That was probably a reference to pastors and elders through whom Christ mediates his rule in the church. And so as I already mentioned, the Holy Spirit raises up pastors to shepherd Christ's church and entrust them with the responsibility to oversee a particular portion of his flock worldwide. 
And so the Lord holds pastors and, 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 and elders accountable for the spiritual condition of that local church that they oversee. And sometimes it's the pastor's and elders' fault that a church is dying. A pastor or a group of elders can get out of touch with the Lord and start ministering in their own power, their own strength, rather than independence on the Holy Spirit. And the Lord has to remove them and put another leader or group of leaders in their place. Steve Lawson, a name I'm sure is familiar to many of you, has written a great commentary on the letters uh, to the churches in Revelation. It's called Final Call. And this is what he said in his comments on this particular letter to the church in Sardis. He said, quote, the key to reviving new life in a dead church lies with the Spirit's ministry in the lives of its pastors and spiritual leaders. Revival must start at the top and spread downward. Pastors must catch, catch fire if the people are to catch fire. Like pastor, like people. No church can go beyond its leadership. God's servants, pastors, elders, deacons must be spiritually empowered men. As the leaders yield their lives to him, God sends the Spirit's power upon them to lead the church in revival. Pray for such men, he says. Any church takes on the priority and the passion and the personality of its leaders for good or for bad. Any church will take on the heartbeat of the spiritual leadership. How important it is that a church's pastor be in tune with God. Just wanted to include that to know that I'm not just preaching to you tonight, I'm preaching to myself. Why? Because church history proves that the primary tool that God has always used to spark revival is prayerful preachers who passionately preach God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody said this way, the best way to start a revival in the church is to build a fire in the pulpit. A young preacher asked a seasoned pastor how to draw a crowd in his church, and the old senior seasoned pastor said, walk behind the pulpit, light yourself, on pipe, light yourself on fire, and people will come watch you burn. So Christ started out this letter reminding them that he holds the key to the revival of this dead church. And it's as if he has in one hand the Holy Spirit, and in the other hand, he has the pastors and the elders, or the angel, if you will, of the church, and he desires to utilize these two together like paddles of a defibrillator to shock the church of Sardis back to life. And so that's the introduction. Christ introduces himself. Now, let's talk about the city here. This is to the angel of the church in Sardis. Sardis was located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, where we were talking about last, last week. It was in the fertile valley of the Hermes River at the junction of five main roads, which made it an important commercial center. It manufactured things like jewelry and dye and textiles. It was best known, however, for its wool production. In fact, it claimed to be the first city to discover the art of dyeing wool, which we're going to see uh, has bearing on Christ's message here uh, to the church in this city. Uh, the main religion in Sardis was the worship of a Cybele, 
which was the same goddess worshipped in Ephesus by the name of Artemis or Diana. We're familiar with that patron deity. But what was unique about this particular goddess is they believed, or it was believed that, that she possessed the special power to give life to the dead. Um, and, and apparently death was a, a morbid preoccupation for the people of Sardis. There was a, an impressive cemetery. It was referred to as a thousand hills because of the hundreds of burial mounds that surrounded the city all around, and they were able to see these, um, these graves for, for miles from the top of Sardis because the city was built on top of this plateau that raised up about 1,500 feet above the main roads that, that created this impregnable fortress against military assault. And on three sides of this uh, plateau were smooth rock walls that went virtually straight up. And the only way you could get up to the city was via this steep, difficult path on one side. And so there was this proverbial saying in those days about capturing the Acropolis of Sardis, which was a way people would describe doing the impossible. And yet the history books tell us that the citizens of Sardis became overconfident they grew complacent and careless, which eventually led to the city's downfall. They had this feeling of invincibility, which caused them to stop even putting watchmen at the gates. It's like, we don't need watchmen. Who's going to get up here? But then the unimaginable happened. They were conquered, not just once, but twice. Two times, enemy armies succeeded in climbing up the side of the mountain and attacking the city that had always been considered inaccessible. In fact, the history, uh, the tradition is that, that uh, there was a, a soldier on the top of uh, one of the Sardinian soldiers. His helmet fell off and rolled down the, the mountain, and he went down to retrieve it, and one of the enemy soldiers saw him, how he got back up. And they followed all the soldiers, hey, come on, guys, I found the way. <laughs> and they all went up and followed this soldier up the hill. But because of those defeats, by the time that the Apostle John penned these words of Christ to the church in Sardis, the, this once great city with a long, rich history had declined significantly. At, at one time, it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, which was one of the wealthiest kingdoms in the world. And, and gold and silver coins were... Uh, apparently first minted here at Sardis. But now, this city was kind of off the grid. Someone said it this way, no city of Asia at that time showed such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay as Sardis. So here was a city that had lost its vitality and it was struggling to stay alive. How ironic. Because the church in that city was faced with the same dilemma. They'd experienced a similar decline. Over time, the life of that church had slowly gone out of it. And so this once great church has lost its vitality. And it was just cruising on, on past momentum. And, and the mission, they were once very mission-minded, and now they were in maintenance mode. And it was a mere shadow of its former glory. And notice the commendation in verse 2. 
Well, I guess it's in, 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 in verse three, uh, verse one there. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. So Christ begins with what seems at first a compliment. Ooh, they probably got up on the edge of their pews and thought, ooh, this is going to be good. What's he going to say? I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive. But that quickly turns into a condemnation. And frankly, Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. They had a name, which meant they had a, a reputation. Apparently, this, this church had a, a good reputation in the community. It was considered to be an effective church from all outward appearances. It, it appeared to be alive and well. Every Sunday, the church was crowded, the parking lot was full, the bulletin had lots of activities and ministries listed in it, the weekly schedule was jam-packed with programs, there was singing, praying, the offering was taken, people were serving. So it looked like the church of Sardis was the place to be, or so it seemed, but it simply looked good on the outside, but it was actually dead on the inside. And Jesus wasn't impressed. He saw past all the religious activity to the heart, and he said, you got no heartbeat. You're dead. And there's nothing that Jesus hates more than dead religion. In fact, he reserved his severest rebukes for those whose religion consisted of self-righteous rituals and rules that hindered people from having a, a genuine relationship with God. Instead of leading people to heaven, they were damning people to hell. This is what he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is a good reminder for us that it doesn't matter how many people come to our church or how beautiful our facilities might be, how respected we are in our community. Again, these external things are not what Christ is looking for or what he cares about. What he wants to see is a dynamic body of believers who are animated by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And I think too many churches and professing Christians today could be characterized as what, what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.5, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And like the church in Sardis, they, they look godly, they sound godly, but they're not truly godly. They're dead. Notice he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This was a congregation of corpses. Again, it doesn't mean that nothing was happening in the church. They, were, they, 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 they weren't just dead bodies just lying around in the foyer, slumped over in the pews. They were all still going through the motions of ministry. It's like, like they were sleepwalking. Any of you sleepwalk? I used to sleepwalk when I was a kid. Freaked out. My parents freaked out, our, especially our babysitters. 
They didn't know what to do. My parents had to warn them when they would leave and say, hey, just so you know, he, he, Kenny, Kenny might get up in the middle of the night and do weird things. You just got to kind of get him back in bed. He'll be fine. So I used to do really weird things. I used to get up in the middle of the night and I'd go to my drawers and I would get dressed for school the next day. And I would put on a set of clothes over my pajamas or I'd go out in the hallway where we had our little thermostat and I'd be in there doing this and my mom would say, she'd ask me, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm getting the mail. Because we, we went to the little post office down the street and we had a little, little, little uh, what do you call that thing? Combination lock that you had to spin this way and spin this way. So I'd be messing with the air conditioner, uh, you know, the heating thing and, and uh, I said, I'm getting, I'm getting the mail. And you would have, my mom said, you would have looked at me and you would thought you were wide awake. But you were totally asleep. What was I doing? I was just kind of going through the motions, unconsciously repeating things I'd done hundreds of times before. And spiritual sleepwalking works the same way. You do things out of habit in your sleep. You know where your Bible is, and you just grab it, and you walk, you know, walk into church, and you know where to go, and this is where we sit, and we just kind of go through the motions. And so the believers in Sardis were asleep. They were lethargic and lackadaisical. They had grown comfortable. They had grown complacent. And they were content to meander in this maze of mediocrity. And they really posed no threat to anyone. They weren't intolerant of anything. They, they weren't confronting the culture. They weren't aggressively penetrating the community with the gospel. I mean, the people in Sardis probably saw the members of the church in Sardis as, 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 as a decent group of folks who were neither dangerous nor desirable. Someone said this, Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. I think it's interesting. You say, well, how does a church get like this? Well, do you notice there's nothing here about persecution? There's nothing about heresy like the other churches? So it seems that the church in Sardis was untouched by persecution and, and untroubled by heresy. And as a result, this, this sheltered church had grown soft and slack. They, they were content to rest on their past laurels. They'd, they'd become nothing more than a monument. Kind of like a, if you've been, ever been to New England where I grew up, there's all these congregational churches that are the the, the quaint little steeple, white, white church with the white steeple that's in the center of all the little, little villages, right? And they're just historical landmarks, void of any spiritual life and fit for nothing but a, a, a picture on a postcard. So persecution is, is good. It's a good thing. It keeps you sharp. Dealing with some kind of problem in your church. It's good. It keeps you sharp. And so that was the condemnation. They, they appeared to be alive, but Jesus said, you're dead. But then he gives the correction. He gives the correction in verses 2 and 3. Notice he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. 
So the church in Sardis was in critical condition. I mean, they needed immediate and decisive action had to be taken to revive this dying church. Kind of like a kind of like a hospital emergency room, like when somebody comes in in critical condition, uh, the, the doctor doesn't say, well, uh, would you guys mind doing this? If, if it's convenient for you, uh, would you do this? No, what is he doing? He's barking out commands in an attempt to save a person's life. Listen, start an IV, intubate, 100 cc's of this, clear, push, they do the, the free, right? I mean, they're, it's like intense. And so here Jesus was racing against death. And so he's barked out some commands here, very direct commands intended to bring this body of believers back to life. The first command is wake up, wake up. Literally, Jesus was saying, be alert, be aware. Apparently, they were unaware of their spiritual state. And he was telling them, hey, snap out of it. You're in this spiritual stupor and, and, and wake up and take a good look in the mirror. Some of you may have been hearing God's alarm clock for a long time now, but you keep hitting the snooze button. You know you're not living the way you should. You know something is missing in your spiritual life, but you're too lazy to get out of bed and change. So the first step for revival is admitting that you need a spiritual awakening in your life. You wake up to the fact that I need that I need revival. The second command is to build up. To build up. Notice he says, "Wake up and strengthen the things that you that remain which were about to die." He says, "For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God." In other words, they were fail, failing to fulfill their duties. They, they needed to go back and do the things they had left undone. And I think he, he probably had in mind here just the basics of the Christian life. I mean, you need to spend time in the Word and, and uh, you know, spend time in prayer and plug back into the life of the church and get back to witnessing to unbelievers. So the second step for revival is just to strengthen those areas that maybe you've allowed to get weak in your life. Those daily spiritual disciplines that maybe um, you haven't been as faithful to. So, so wake up. Number two, build up. Number three, bring up. Notice verse three. So remember, that's where I got the idea of bring up there. Remember Bring to mind what you've received and heard and keep it. Literally, keep on remembering. And so Christ, I think, was exhorting them to bring to mind all the truths in God's word that they had learned in the past and to reflect on their spiritual, their rich spiritual heritage. And by the time this letter was, was, in, uh, this letter was written here, Paul's letters were in circulation. The rest of the New Testament had been written, right? This is the last letter, the last book, the book of Revelation. So I think the third step here for revival is to call to mind everything you've learned as a Christian that will serve as a foundation on which you can build your relationship with Christ. 
Where do you start? Rebuilding, right? Remembering. You remember first so that you can rebuild. Number four is step up. Step up. Notice he says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it. In other words, do it. Don't just remember. Oh, yeah, I remember that truth. Well, do it. Keep it. Apply it. Live it out. And so Christ was exhorting them to put the truth of God's word that they knew into practice into every area of their lives. In other words, it's not enough to know it or to even believe it. God's truth is useless unless it's applied. And so the fourth step for revival is to commit yourself to living an obedient life, to stop being just a hearer of the word, but become a doer of the word. So we're to wake up, to build up, to bring up, to step up, and then number five is shape up. Shape up. Notice he says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and what? Repent, which is in almost all of these letters, right? To repent means to change your mind, which results in a change of direction. And so Christ was commanding them, hey, you've got to change here. You've got to turn away from your sin and turn back to Christ with all your heart. And so in order for repentance to be genuine and for a permanent change to take place, you need to radically restructure your life for change. You need to do whatever it takes to, to break old habits and establish new ones in their place. And so the fifth step for revival is to change the way you're living your life. And if we follow these five steps that Jesus gives us here in verses 2 and 3, it will infuse new life into our relationship with him and into our church. But if we disregard these commands, we invite the judgment of Christ on our church and on our individual lives. Notice he says, but... He said, no, therefore, excuse me, verse 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will, know at, you will not know at what hour I will come to you. How does a thief come? Does a thief announce, hey, I'm coming tomorrow at 3 p.m. to rip off your house, to break into your house and steal stuff. I'll be there. No, he doesn't do that. He comes when you're not expecting him to come. And so Jesus warned them if they didn't do what he commanded here, he would come suddenly and unexpectedly to judge them. Now, this is not a reference to his return. We know that throughout the New Testament, uh, Jesus and the apostles talked about Christ's return will be like a thief in the night. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about his second coming here. He's simply talking about coming to discipline them and to remove their lampstand like he threatened to do with the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Again, I think this is interesting in light of the fact that the city of Sardis had been overtaken twice without warning by stealth, by enemy armies. I think this was a vivid reminder to the Sardinian believers to, to not let spiritual smugness caused them to become overconfident or, or give them a sense of 
a false sense of security, like, yeah, whatever. So I would just say this. If you're sitting here tonight considering putting off getting right with God, consider yourself forewarned that Christ could come at any moment when you least expect it to discipline you for your disobedience or your deadness to him. Well, that's the condemnation. Thankfully, all of these letters end with consolation, with consolation. Notice verse 4. He says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. So as Christ diagnosed the condition of this dying church, he noticed there was some sign of life. There was a godly remnant, a committed core who who still pulsated with spiritual life. They hadn't soiled their garments. In other words, they'd kept themselves from being defiled by the pagan society around them. They'd remained pure and unstained by the world. They they, they were personally walking with Christ and, and worthy of having an eternal relationship with him. And that's what he meant when he said, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. They had proved the the genuineness of their commitment to Christ by not allowing themselves to be overcome by spiritual drowsiness. And again, he uses the word overcomes. He who overcomes, verse 5. This is the doctrine of the overcomer, the, the true believer, the one who perseveres by the grace of God. And he gave these three overcomer or these overcomers a threefold promise. Number one, he promises them eternal righteousness. Notice he says, um, "He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments." And we see references to white garments all throughout the book of Revelation. It's the white is the color of heaven. Why? Everyone in heaven will be wearing white. It symbolizes that we've been fully cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been clothed with his righteousness. We stand justified before God and are holy and pure in his sight. And so Christ promised these faithful believers and Sardis that he would dress them in white. And in those days, white garments were worn for festive occasions, for weddings, for victory celebrations. And this was, I think, especially meaningful to those who lived in the city where wool was produced. So he promised them eternal righteousness. Secondly, he promises them eternal refuge. Notice this phrase. This has hopefully caught your attention when I read this initially. Verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. That was Christ's way of saying, of promising them that they would go to heaven when they died. And this book of life is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, chapter 13, 17, 20, 20, and 21. A couple of times in, in, in chapter 20. But the book of life, probably you're most familiar with chapter 20, when it talks about the, this book of life is going to be opened up, Right? 
But the book, the book of life, you say, what is the book of life? The book of life contains the names of all those who God has sovereignly chosen by his electing grace before the foundation of the earth to be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven. In other words, every name in the book of life has already been written. There's some bad theology in some of the hymns, our favorite hymns. Remember that old hymn? There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Like you're supposed to sing that after you get saved, right? As if God's like, oh, you got saved? Let me add you to the list. No, your, your name was already on the list. And it, it's always been there, and it always will be there. And I think it's helpful to understand the history of these ancient cities that we're studying, that the names of citizens were recorded in an official register, and when a person died, their name was erased from the book. One commentator also mentioned that there was a large synagogue. In fact, they unearthed the largest synagogue outside of Israel in the city of Sardis. And if you remember, when you, if you were a Jew and you... Um, received Jesus Christ and acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior, that he was the Messiah, they would take your name off the record of the synagogue. But his point, I think Jesus' point here is if you're a true Christian, if you're a true follower of Christ, you never have to worry about your name being erased from God's official register when you die. Because in eternity past... God wrote your name in indelible ink. It could never be erased. God never erases names from the book of life. When he, when he opens the book of life at the great right throne judgment, those whose names are not found in the book aren't going to be people whose name got erased somewhere along the way, but those whose names were never there to begin with. And so you read that and you might assume that it's possible for a Christian's name to be erased from the book of life, even though it's actually saying the exact opposite. This was intended to be a promise, not a warning. Christ wasn't at all implying that it's possible for a person to lose their salvation, which some might say. John 10, verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So they're in my hand and then my hand's in the father's hands. You are doubly safe. So he promises them eternal righteousness, he promises them eternal refuge, and then finally he promises them eternal recognition. Notice he says verse, at the end of verse 5, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Christ promised to reward our loyalty to him on earth by recognizing us, recognize us when we get to heaven. And Jesus will be like, Hey, Dad. I don't know if he calls the first member of the Trinity Dad, right? But hey, Dad. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, Michael. I want you to meet Steve Schreiner. He's one of mine. He's one of my sheep for whom I died. Here's your inheritance. 
that I prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. Of the earth. So Jesus was simply reaffirming here the promise that he, he, he made to his disciples during his earthly ministry. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Luke 12, verse 8, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. So he promises to recognize them in heaven. And then notice again how Christ ends. Verse 6, he who has ears, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm looking out, everybody that I see, you got a couple of them, got a couple of years, right? And we've heard the Spirit's voice tonight, and we can't ignore it. And I think he, what, what the Spirit would want of us tonight is for all of us to grab our wrists, not literally, grab our wrists or find our jugular vein and take our spiritual pulse. He's challenging us to check our vital signs, to see if we're dead or alive, spiritually speaking, and take the steps that Christ has laid out in this letter for spiritual revival. About five years ago, I guess, back in 2018, I preached a little mini-series on revival called it Revive Us, O Lord. Because there's a lot of wackiness and craziness and confusion when it comes to what is true revival. Um, most recently, right, this just past year at Asbury College, an- another revival broke out there. And like, what's up with that? What's, is there like, is that holy ground, Asbury? They keep having these revivals. What's happening? Well, a lot of it has to do with the theology um, that revivalistic theology that they, they hold to and they promote. But I remember when I was teaching that series, I was reminded of an English evangelist named Gypsy Smith who was asked what it takes to have revival. And he said this, he said, go to your place of prayer and kneel down and draw a circle around yourself and then pray that God would start a revival inside that circle. And stay there, he said, until he answers and you're going to have revival. In other words, revival needs to start with us, right? In our own hearts. And so those of us who may have grown, grown slack and, and sleepy need to go home and, and get alone with God. Get on our knees and ask him to revive us and renew us, and reanimate our hearts by his spirit. You say, well, what do I pray? Well, you should have a little half sheet of paper on the center of your table, and hopefully there's enough for at least one per couple, or I don't know, make sure everybody gets one. You can fight over it if you want. 
but uh, this was after doing that series on revival, I, I put together this list of kind of a prayer guide, uh, a list of, of things that we should seek um, as we seek spiritual revival, renewal for ourselves and others. This is what we need to beg God. We need to beg God for some things. We need to beg God to restore the joy of our salvation. We need to beg God to invade our life with a fresh awareness of his presence. We need to beg God to cause us to fall in love with Jesus all over again. We need to beg God to increase our hunger for him and his word. We need to beg God to deepen our sense of desperate dependence on him in prayer. We need to beg God to awaken us from spiritual slumber, stupor, or sluggishness. We need to beg God to heighten our sensitivity to sin and our unworthiness. We need to ask God to humble us and produce in us a broken and contrite heart. We need to stimulate, ask God to stimulate us to pursue holiness more aggressively. That he would provide us the means to make restitution for wrongs done. That he would move us to be reconciled to others. We need to beg God to make us more willing to selflessly and sacrificially serve others. We need to beg him to grant us closer and sweeter fellowship with other believers We need to beg him to burden us and embolden us to share the gospel with the lost. And finally, we need to beg God to give us a greater passion for his glory and the honor of his name. If you need a guide to what to pray, I think these are all very biblically-based prayers from the heart of someone longing for true revival. And notice what I said on the bottom there. An individual and or church that experiences true revival will be marked by these things. In other words, if you want to know what revival looks like, that's what it looks like. If you lack these things, you are a prime candidate for revival. Remember, however, we should not presume upon God that just because we pray, he will revive our life or the life of our church, but by boldly and earnestly seeking God's face, we put ourselves in the best possible position to experience revival. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this convicting reminder of how easy it is to fall asleep in church. And not literally, but spiritually. We all tend to get spiritually drowsy at times. We're just sluggish and find ourselves in in just kind of this uh, stagnant place. And so, Lord, I just pray for any of us who are feeling this tonight, that you would use uh, Christ's letter to the church in Sardis to uh, ignite a passion to pray and to really seek revival in our own hearts, and that all of us would be continually praying for revival in in the life of our church at large as well. And so, Lord, only your spirit can do this. We can't make this happen in our own strength. It needs to be um, empowered and accomplished and animated by your spirit. So thank you for promising uh, to give us the Holy Spirit to help us, to grow us, to mature us, to convict us, to revive us. And so may we not quench or grieve the spirit in any way, but may we yield ourselves completely for him, to him to accomplish his work in our hearts 
in our minds and our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you guys again for being here. You can thank me for not going till midnight. Um, just kidding. But um, anyway, I encourage you to hang around and maybe talk about how you were encouraged, how you were challenged uh, by the message tonight while you stack chairs. Because um, we do need to stack the chairs and roll the tables into the closet here. So if you can help us do that, we'd appreciate it. But you guys have a great night. Thanks again for being here.